What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Julie Peasy, president of Buda Murray Productions. You know, there's sometimes on this show, I meet somebody for the first time, and it's clear this is somebody I should have known and had a relationship with much earlier than this. I can't believe I've gone this long in the business and haven't had a quality sit down with Julie Peasy. We have so many mutual friends, so many mutual colleagues and acquaintances in the business. Had a blast getting to know her, talking about all the exciting things that Buna Murray is up to these days, how they are preparing for the metaverse and they're getting into the NFT space in addition to being one of the most reputable and longstanding uh institutions in the history of unscripted television. I love Julie's story of coming in to Buna Murray at a very young age and an early point in her career. And now she's running the joint. It was fantastic. This is my sit down with Julie Peasy. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, I have to ask right off the top. Peasy, are you a fellow Italian? I am. I Where? am indeed. Okay, I think I'm I think a Rhode like, Island Italian, so just saying. East Coast, East Coast Italian. Yes, sir. So, do you have? Did you like have the Italian speaking grandpa and grandma growing up on the father's side? On my my grandmother and my great grandfather. I never met my grandfather. He died quite young, but yeah. They did speak Italian and I kind of loved it. And like the Italian food was amazing. It was very nice. We just, although my mom's French Canadian. So I didn't really get the benefit of the Italian cooking on her end. On that end. But yeah, I just had my, just last week, we celebrated the 101st birthday for my grandfather. He just turned 101. First of all, that's amazing. So congratulations to your grandpa. Yeah. Now, is it, is your grandfather Italian? Yes, that's why I bring this up. Yes. Because like yeah. I wouldn't think that Fox is an Italian last name. It's not. It's my mom's side. Okay, got you, got you. Oh, and this, by the way, is one of my favorite conversations about how much names can like shift who you are as a human being. <laughs> I'm a big believer in that because I, I, I talked about this on another episode, like how people treat you a certain way with what your name is. Right. And then people treat you a certain way. So you start like feeling like you either need to live up to it or, or not. As an right. adult, it, it does shape you. So if I had taken on my mom's Italian maiden name when my parents Which is got, what? When my parents got divorced, I would be Jimmy Carnicelli. Oh, nice. Oh, that is a good one too. Carnicelli. G- Jimmy Carnicelli is a totally different human being from Jimmy Fox. I kind of think it would be. And then you wouldn't be married to Missy Fox, which is a great name too. Jimmy and Missy. It's a perfect uh, like well, Missy, couple name. Well, Missy Mahala would have definitely not married. <laughs> taking on Missy Carnicelli. I don't think I probably wouldn't have, I probably would have lost out on her too. You might've, it might've been a jailbreaker. Yeah. Jimmy Carnicelli, I think is more like I work at Hollywood park and I run numbers, you know, I'm taking, I'm taking side bets. I'd have a totally different life. I'd, I'd, I'd have way more chest hair. You oh know, my God. what do you call your grandfather? We, you know, we never had any Italian nomenclatures other than my great grandma who was thick Italian, broken English we called her Nani. Okay. Right. Because that's what and my I, mom called her as a grandmother. We, and I, I remember was, as a kid, I would say like, I like if you went Nani's, you were going to sleep, which I don't know that that has anything, but I actually remember that. And we called my grandfather Tadone. And I don't even know what that means. It was just wait, like a great grandfather name. Wait, say that again. Tadone. 
Really? That's what I know. It must be like an affectionate name for great grandfather. I mean, I don't know. Like, by the way, I should look it up because I might have just said something that's totally offensive. (laughs) Should we look it up right now? Sure. Should we just get to the bottom of this? Google it. I wouldn't. I mean, let me see if it comes up as like, because I never spelled it. I just called him that. Tadum Italian? Tadum. Yeah. Italian. Let me see. See, See, how how do you think you spell it? I I mean, like T-A-D-O-N-E. Okay. I didn't have the E. Okay. I'm I'm looking. But I don't know. Hold on. Let me see. Oh, a familiar and affectionate nickname for grandfather. There you go. T-A-T-O-N-E. There you go. You were doing it right the whole time. I was. I feel so much better that it wasn't some like, you know, who knows? I'm glad we could crack the code. We have. We have. And if you ever want to call your grandfather now, Tudum. I could just surprise him. I feel like you could just, you know, change it at 101. I actually, we named my youngest, we named uh, Francesca, we named her after him, his name's Frank. That's so we, we call it, so we call her Frankie. That's yeah. adorable. But, but this isn't, this isn't, who do you think you are? I won't keep taking you down <laughs> the genealogy tree, but you wrote, grew up in Rhode Island. So what did your parents do? Um, my dad was an electrician and my mom is a therapist. So where did the influence come to want to work in entertainment? Did this find you early in life? Did you get obsessed with certain shows or was it a late blooming thing like in college? No, I, I was as long as I can remember. In fact, I remember like thinking in like movies, like, but I couldn't figure out when I was really young how they did the POV. I was like, how are they in their eyes? I, for some reason, I didn't understand that you just put the camera and just shoot forward so I really remember like, like five or six years old being interested in how things are made. And then I really sort of gravitated towards like news and documentary and sort of studied journalism in school and broadcast. And that sort of evolved into sort of documentary as we know it. And that sort of evolved into reality. So it kind of was a pretty clear path, but, um, but you know, I think as far back as I remember, I wanted to work in the space. But were there any specific shows that you remember being influential to at least make you want to be part of entertainment? You know, I think I started reading the Essie Hinton books and I was sort of obsessed with the outsiders and that sort of like Rumblefish now and that was it now and then. And, um, and watch those films as they came out. And by the way, they, like, I remember getting them from Blockbuster on VHS and watching like really stylized films. I mean, it was, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, but at the time I didn't know that he was significant, Mm -hmm. Um, but really being sort of inspired by like books to movies Mm -hmm. and really certainly like. I loved that teen genre, like 16 Candles, Breakfast Club, like all of those films really shaped my youth. I'm loving every part of this conversation right now because you know I'm a total pop. I don't know if you know this. I'm a total pop culture junkie. And I I went into this deep dive not so long ago on the making of The Outsiders. Oh, really? Because I read Rob Lowe's book and his first book, his first memoir, and he does like 50, 60 pages just on the outsiders. Oh, it's so worth reading, huh? And, and for you youngins out there that don't know this, we're talking about maybe the greatest male ensemble cast ever put on film. You know, it's young Tom Cruise, Emilio Estevez, Rob Lowe, uh, Patrick Swayze. It's Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio. I mean, it, uh, Matt it's Dillon. Howell. Like it was, yeah, Matt I Dillon. mean, talk yeah. about having like forethought with casting. But And but I remember reading in like the teen magazines when they were filming it, 
And like, they were all in like Oklahoma, right? Yeah, it was Oklahoma. It was like not far out of Tulsa. And they were all like put in this like little universe together. And I'm like, ah, this must've been so interesting. Well, and also the way they, the way they, the way Francis Ford Coppola did the audition process was unlike anything else because it was more like basketball tryouts. Because usually when you audition for a role, you do it in seclusion. You know, you go in, you read with whoever's reading with you, the director's in the room, maybe one other co-star will be in the room. He had them all come to the sound stages at Universal and all of like every boy, every man of a certain age was called in for this, everybody in town. And they all sat there and watched. So he put the spotlight in the middle of the soundstage and set up like five chairs for like an ensemble scene. And they would all be watching literally from the sideline all day, watching each other's performances, like psyching, psyching, psyching themselves out. And he would just have them switch roles at random. Just to see who fit. Just to see who fit. I also heard that, and I don't know if this is true, but that um, even when they were in location, they separated them. So like yes. the gre- the people playing the greasers, those actors and socials would like be in different areas so that they could create sort of friction between the actors. Yes. Yeah. This is genius. So they put the socials, I think the socials were put in a better hotel. <laughs> and I think, and I think they were also given more per diem per day. So, and they weren't even like the bigger stars. They were, they were the supporting cast and the main cast, the greasers, they were put in the crappier hotel and not given as much money at night. I mean, it was kind of genius though, right? Oh, it's incredible. It's incredible. I, so, but the, the part going back to S.E. Hinton, I never knew anything about her. I didn't know her story. And I'm like, how has there not been like a scripted film about her experience writing the book at like, as like a teenager? you know, being told to use your initials so people don't know you're a woman. And by the and way, then- that's what I thought. Like, I never knew. It wasn't until much later that I knew that it was a woman. I was reading all of her books, but I had no idea that it, she was a woman because of the way it was, It was, you know, her writing very male stories, I guess, was like a conflict of interest and people weren't as keen on it. Yeah, it's like by, it's like by 18, when the book comes out, it's a huge phenomenon. And, and didn't she play like a nurse in the Johnny scene after he got burned? Yeah, she did. Yeah, it, it's a huge. And then like by like something like her mid twenties or something, she gets like writer's block. And then the movie doesn't get made until many years later, because I feel like it was like some like class, somebody's like a class assignment. These kids got together and wrote her a letter or wrote Francis Ford Coppola a letter and said, you should make The Outsiders into a movie. It's our favorite book in like our fifth grade class or something. Wow. So just this, this, anyway, I can do 20 Actually, minutes. I love that you know so much about it. I feel like I need to read Rob Lowe's book, but I also feel like you're giving Netflix an idea of doing a series about her story. I'm doing what you're not supposed to do here. I'm giving away free ideas on, on the free podcast. Ideas. I got to bottle this up. Uh, <laughs> so you're okay. So your dad's an electrician. Your mom's mm-hmm. a therapist. Mm-hmm. You're inspired by the business. So when it's time to choose college, was entertainment part of that or no? No, because I don't think at the time it didn't really occur to me to go to film school. It felt like I should just go into journalism. And I did start working at a radio station when I was about 13, 14 in the news department. 13 years old. You're in a news station. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, old school W-K-R-I. radio station. Oh um, Did you get on air? No, I actually would. I mean, I did do like some stories, but it was really um, there was a woman that was the news reporter and I would just like write like some copy or I'd pull stories for her. It was very much like an internship, but um, but it really did get me excited about news. Um, So by the time I went to college, I was kind of going for journalism and I ended up going to Northeastern in Boston. 
Okay. Hold on. We got to go back a second. I thought I had some like chutzpah when I was 16 and wrote my local radio station in Santa Cruz and said, can you give me any job? I had a license. I had a car. You're 13, 14. You're in junior high and you write them a letter and say, hey, I'll just do whatever you need. Well, in all fairness, my my dad's really good friend was an investor in the station. So I kind of got kind of get a leg up. So I, um, I did say that I wanted to work there and I, I got in, but it was, um, it was, you know, it was a really tiny little AM station in my hometown. Like it's not, it wasn't like, it was like the big leagues. Yeah. But you were like a talk radio station that played some music. Yeah. But at 13, you're doing that. Yeah. You're not running a lemonade stand or doing Oh, by a- the way, I couldn't wait to work. Like I really, even as like, even as like a teenager, like I could not wait to have a job. Like I was running an orange Julius at like 14 or 15. Like, I'm sure it was illegal. Like they would just leave me there like for the night. Like, I mean, I'm, I think back and I'm, I, I'm like, was that legal? No, I don't, you, you're not even supposed to have a work permit till 15. Right. I, yeah. I don't, I mean, by the time I was 15 or 16, I was fully waitressing. Cause it kind of clicked in that like tips were yeah. like really the way to go at that age. Orange Julius. So this is at the mall. Oh yeah. Yeah. I actually worked at a place called the Newport Creamery too, which was also like, I really got into the ice cream shop thing for a bit. Okay. So you were, you were a worker from the beginning. I was a worker. I was. All right. So you get out of Northeastern. What is the first kind of gig that sends you on your way? Um, well, Northeastern is sort of known for having like a co-op program. So you work, you go to school after your sophomore year, you go to school for three months, you work in your business for three months. So by the time I got out of college, I had actually already met Patty, who became my business partner, because we both met at an internship while we were both in college at CNN in Washington, D.C. during the 92 election. Mm. So at this point, Patty and I were like, oh, we should just develop TV shows, like develop news programs. So we were honestly pitching, like I think we were in 20 we were like pitching out of the gate, but what kept happening is we would go in and pitch show ideas and then they would hire us as like, as like a pair. And here's the, the awesome part is that we also like split a salary. So like we wow. would sometimes share a computer because they're like, we don't really want to choose. So we'll hire both of you <laughs> and you can split a salary and also share a computer. And so, a desk. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you know what? It was so much fun. I mean, you get to work with my best friend and it was like, it was seemed like it was a great idea at the time. Oh yeah. At that time in your life, are you kidding? Just to be in like a real newsroom and be like paid for your time is all you can ask for. I mean, one of the first jobs that Patty and I got together was for KNBC and it was a show called good news. And it was the first sold project from Paul Bucciri and Rob Weiss when they were partners. And so, and then Chris Licht was also like, it's so funny to look back, but he was one of the segment producers or I think Patty and I were AP, we're all APs. Wait, hold on, educate me on this. Cause I don't think I know, I don't think I know the Paul Rob Weiss combination partnership. I think my my earliest exposure to Paul was when uh, it was still called Granada when he was like so back in the ITV days. They had a company called Bucheri Weiss. Okay. And I want to say this was like 1996. This isn't Rob Weiss that would later go to work on Entourage. This is a different Rob Weiss. Oh, I don't think he worked on Entourage. Like he, but he's a producer. He did okay. some, like he does, definitely does projects. 
Okay, because now this is this is all new information to me. Because I I know of one Rob Weiss who was like a producer slash writer on Entourage, but I don't know if there was a reality. I mean, TV. it could be him. I I kind of lost touch, but I I mean, he did like the Liza Minnelli project. I okay. thought, and um, you know, he's definitely they I they definitely did a bunch of shows together and then sort of split up and kind of started their own careers. Okay. All right. So you guys are a team, but I can't speak to their history because I don't remember it all. I just remember working for them and they were so young and it was like, we're doing this like pilot. Um, and it was like an exciting time, but there's also like no rules at that point. Like, do you, do you look back now in, into the, like when you were just getting started thinking about how now with every network, there is like decades and decades of institutional rules of things they do as a network and things they don't and how back then it was, we were all just figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, and there was like, you know, to be honest, there wasn't really any internet. Like (laughs) you like would research things with Nexus Lexus and, you know, it was just a different time. Okay. So what was aging myself, but it was, you know, it was the nineties. But when we get into the reality TV era, which is like now becoming like mid nineties, late nineties, obviously real world plays a huge part in that. What, what is like your first exposure, to like quote unquote reality TV? Would you say? It was really being a Marie. Like I did start working in sort of unscripted. I was working at GRB for a couple of years and mostly doing the um, more caught on tape type of shows where you mm-hmm. tell a story about something that was sort of like that footage already existed on. But I was, I was so inspired by real world and road rules while I was in college that I always wanted to get into being a Marie. So when an opportunity sort of came about. And I think it was Tim Krupsack that told me about a position there and I applied and I actually didn't get it. It was for Road Rules Latin America. And I almost got the job. And then they decided like that it didn't make sense. I didn't speak Spanish. And I mean, I was, my Spanish was remedial. Yeah. So, um, and then I got a call a couple of months later to do the first challenge. And then I, you know, started working for Buda Marie and I never left. Well, I did leave eventually, but I didn't, I was there for years. Yeah. How long were you there? Cause uh, you know, obviously now you're I president. I was there like six or seven years before Patty and I split off and started PB&J. Split off and started PB&J. Oh, you, yeah. you two split from Buna Murray and started. Yeah. PB&J. So Patty, so I was working at Buna Murray. Patty was working on Amy um, biographies mm-hmm. at Van Ness Films. And then Patty came over on Road Rules 10. Um, which was Morocco, Spain. And she was one of our, she, she, I hired her as a director. And then she, from there, started show running for Buna Murray where she did Simple Life and she did um, a medical project with Kevin Lee. Um, but at that time we were both at Buna Murray. And then, and then, you know, when Patty and I were just getting out of college, we really wanted to start our own company. We just didn't know what we didn't know. So we were already always like coming up with show ideas. So when the opportunity sort of presented itself, we decided to start PB&J. So let's start from the early days of Buna Murray. Let's, yeah. let's, let's go back to that real quick. I, I, I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, John Murray one year live at Real Screen, which was, which was awesome. Um, and he, of course, spoke about Mary Ellis as a partner. But I've never really had anybody on the podcast since connected to Buna Murray who can describe them as bosses, them as heads of a company that, you know, you were mentored by. I would love to hear what the interview was like. Do you remember the interview? Was it with either Mary Ellis or John, John, when you first came in, what was the initial job interview like there? Um, so the interview was with Mary Ellis and John, 
And they had this big office with a big round table and you sat down and they were like, the interview was very serious. Like getting onto the, these franchise shows for them was very hard. Um, you had to do a writing sample. Mary Alice was very adamant that people had to know how to write well if they were going to represent the company. Mm. And then you also had to do like provide in the, in my first, the case of my first interview, I had to do like, I had to come up with several examples of missions like fully developed. And at the time they were doing Latin America. So I had to come up with ideas for challenges that would happen in Latin America. Mm. Um, and then you went in and then you had to pitch those ideas to them. Um, and it was very nerve wracking. And John was in, you know, my first meeting was a little warmer than Mary Alice, but you know, Mary Alice was the type of person that like, you know, she was, she was like very serious and, and kind of tough, but once she kind of cared about you or once you earned her respect, she was actually very encouraging and very loving. Um, but it was like, it took a minute. Like she didn't just warm up to you. Like you really had to earn it. Well, um, also there's a million people that are yeah. in their I mean, building at any given point, right? I mean, so. everyone was kind of afraid of Mary Ellis because she was badass. I mean, you know, her and John were like, they were still like, even then it was like, they were really created a new genre. So it was like, you really did feel like you were in the company of greatness, you know? And, um, but they were incredible mentors. And I will say they were very accessible and they really did impart wisdom and teach you the job. And that's where you talk about the rules of reality. Like I didn't even know what I didn't know because I was coming out of like mostly just shooting interviews and B-roll and to immerse yourself into what is like, um, an experience with cast is such a different world, like rolling tape all the time, this idea of there is no like stopping. Um, and then all the rules that came with that, like you can't talk to the cast. I mean, that's like such a strange thing, but it was very much. Wait, tell me aligned. this. So, so, the, so you come in the first season of the challenge. What, what level producer are you when you come in? I was in? a segment producer. You're a segment producer mm -hmm. and, and you're told certain people are told you don't talk to the cast. Yeah. Um, so my bosses were Matt Kunitz and Rick De La Vera yep. and they were the showrunners and they were doing it together. And then Bonnie Bogard was also part of that um, as a creative. And yeah, you're sort of kind of immersed into this world where they basically say like your job is like my job is to come up with the ideas and execute them. And I would advance to locations and then, the you know, the RVs would arrive and then it's sort of game time. Um, and you knew you really weren't allowed to talk to the cast and you know, the idea is that the crew was sort of like invisible and the only people that really talked to the cast were either like the director or the producers. Man. And honestly, I took it so seriously. Like, I wouldn't even make eye contact. Like I would, yeah. I was definitely like, you know, like we, you know, it was like the idea was that your job, you know, depended on it and as it you not creating relationships. And by the way, Jimmy, we're yeah. all the same age. Yeah. So like, of course it's a little strange that oh, like, yeah you're literally working with people, kind of telling them what to do. And we're all like kind of the same age yeah. as the yeah. cast because the entire crew was so young. I mean, everyone was in their twenties. Yeah. Everyone's starting out and you're right. There was a brand new genre. So there were no experts. So the experts were basically being taught the job as we're starting to create the genre. Did you ever see Mary Ellis in boss mode vis-a-vis -vis her communicating and dealing with network execs? Like, did you ever see her in that kind of role? Did you ever want, or were you not in those rooms when she had to like deal directly with network execs on fires and whatnot? 
I was fortunate enough to be in the room. Can I get, um, can I just get a snapshot of, of, of this, of how she handled them back then? She was a boss. Like she, <laughs> I mean, listen, she commanded a room. Like I, I think the great thing about her is that she just, she was really brilliant um, as is John. And that like, she didn't really take any shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and honestly, like I, like, I think as like, you know, when you hear somebody sort of being really assertive, you kind of like, Oh my God, like you kind of shrink down in your chair a little bit, but, um, but she also had great respect, like, great respect for the networks that we were working with and they respected her. But I, when she was passionate about something, she was adamant about it. Yeah. I would love, I would love to be able to just go in a time machine and sit in on what a notes call was like then. You know, what's really cool is we have been doing these reunion series. Um, the I saw you did, you did LA and New York, right? Yeah. And some of the footage that we've unearthed that weren't really in the shows was like some things that dealt like with either problems we've added them to the reunion or the homecoming shows, but there's all this footage of Mary Alice and John. Mm -hmm. So it was like getting to see them when they were doing this for the very first time before I knew them. Like, it's like almost looking at footage of like your parents' wedding. Like yeah. it's like when they sort of created the genre and when they were working with like George for sure. And they were, and even like Lisa Berger was in the tapes. It was like all of them at the oh. beginning of what would end up being an entire genre. So there's something really special about th those videotapes. It, so I, I want to play a game with you real quick because it totally touches on it. Cause we always talk about how Buna Murray, in, are you a sports fan by any chance? Uh, don't okay, don't test fine. me like I like watching you don't need to be you don't need to be you don't need okay, to be okay. but there's, there's I can take a, an analogy no, it's an analogy but it, it'll I'll explain it they have okay. this term in sports called a coaching tree and it shows that some head coaches have had future head coaches come up the ranks behind them right in on their staff and some brilliant coaches have like the greatest coaching trees like if you look at one tree right now right. one head coach is responsible for seven future NFL head coaches right oh that's pretty cool and that's what Buna Murray was like Buna Murray so many notable players in our business, you've already mentioned like half a dozen of them came up through their shows. And for that reason, I want to play a quick game with you. It's really more of a thought exercise. Okay. I, I did something similar with Corey Henson. I asked Corey Henson to play this game with me where I asked her, what is the greatest American made format of all time? American created format of all time. That was the game we played. And I, and, and people seem to enjoy that. So I want to ask okay. you, I want to ask you a similar question. What is the Mount Rushmore of reality TV shows, period? And I say this because real world has to be on it because of its impact both on screen and behind the scenes in our business as a factory of future storytellers in our business. You can only fit four because it's the Mount Rushmore. I have real world on there, but what else would you have on there? I have three that I, I feel supremely confident in. It's the fourth one that I struggle with. Okay. So real world, hundred percent. Okay. Oh, okay. And I this is I, where it gets a little tricky. Because I, think I, saw, I think I just saw my fourth, by the way. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Like, I kind of feel like it's the challenge, but I think there's a part of me that sees that the challenge sort of grew bigger because of shows like survivor and yeah. big brother. Yeah. But like, I almost want to group them together because they represent the same thing. And then there's a part of me that wants to say the Osbournes, but what I really mean is the Kardashians, but there wouldn't have necessarily been a Kardashians if it wasn't for the Osbournes. Yeah. And there is something to be said for like how like somebody does something really brilliant, 
and it blossoms another show that's really brilliant, but you still yeah. have to go down to the bottom and give credit to like where it came from. You have to look at the individual successes of the specific shows. All right, let me just tell you mine. Okay. I'll, I'll give you a few more seconds to think. I'm going to need your final answer on this. Oh man. Okay. So I don't know if you need, I don't know if you need to write it down, but I don't, I can't rob the listeners. Okay. Go ahead. All right. I have the real world survivor American idol. Those oh. were the three that I was like, they have to, in my eyes have to be on it. And then as we were talking, I'm like, yeah, Kardashians probably has to be the fourth. Like if you're just looking at so many episodes, long running cultural impact, what every network wants in the future is to find their family doc series, even though the Osbournes was like the first really to do it. If you just look at the longevity and the success, Kardashians has far surpassed the success of the Osbournes. I guess that would be my fourth, but there's no bad answer here. No, but I also would say like, I would separate like live performance music shows from oh. unscripted reality, because I feel like okay. real world Survivor Kardashians, like you're, it's not live in front of a studio audience because I yeah. agree. American Idol did change everything. And to be honest, The Bachelor kind of deserves a spot in there too, because yeah. like these franchise series like blew up the genre. Okay. Let's do this. Let's, let's be, let's be fantasy bookers here as they okay. say, in, as they say in the professional wrestling world. So we're going to fantasy book this. All right. So okay. are you saying you're going to separate it by format and doc? Is that, well, are, are I you just saying think in that, studio like, American Idol belongs in a different category okay. because that's not really, that's a competition. That's a talent okay. show. Okay. So then you would be like the voice American Idol. I'm with you. I'm with you. So, so like variety slash studio audience shows. I kind of think it's a little different than okay. like, I think the ones that sort of probably made the most, um, that probably made the most progress or created the most progress in our industry would be real world, the bachelor, bachelor. survivor. Yeah. And probably the Kardashians. That's a good list. Because I really want to say the Osbournes too, but the truth is, is the Kardashians just took it to a different level, but the Osbournes was so good. Yeah, no, that's a good list. I mean, that, that was what I had, but you swapped Bachelor for Idol. Um, but Idol, I, was, smart. Um, Idol was very important. It it's just, okay, it's, Idol has its own Mount Rushmore. We're going we're gonna to do this I now. feel like it's a different bucket. Okay, so if you then have to pair Idol with the other goats of live performance slash variety, I'm starting to think now like Star Search? By the way, Star Search, Star Search was a huge the way. Deal. that was a huge deal. Like if we're going to start going into that genre now, I'm going to put Star Search in there. Idol are, are game shows in this category since it's live audience. I mean, I feel like um, uh, Millionaire was such an important show. Oh, I like that answer. I like that answer. Okay. All right. So we've got Star Search. See, so many people listening are going to be like. How can you guys put Star Search in? Like, because you know, because, it's probably way, I watched it when I was younger. I loved that show. Yes. It was one of my favorite shows that Dukes of Hazard, <laughs> Love Boat, and Buck Rogers. Just saying, just going to 70s and 80s programming. Buck Rogers. Best. That was a deep pull. Best. That was a deep pull. What did you think about that new? Well, I, I, I won't go into the Love Boat discussion yet because the Love Boat reality show just got announced. We yes. have to fill out our four. So, Star Search, okay. Idol millionaire, which I think is a really smart, smart decision. And then you could have Jeopardy. Yeah. In but there, that, you could have Prices Right in there. Oh, Prices Right was really which, good. Which but I, I do think like in terms of performance, cause those get into more, well, actually millionaire was just a game show too, but the voice also just made a lot of 
Yeah. Like the voice was really instrumental in keeping that genre alive. If the voice, the voice, I mean, yeah, it really, it really did at a time. By the way, where- Dancing with the Stars. Like does really well. Corey said if there was one show she could ever work on for the remainder of her life, it would be Dancing with the Stars. Really? I that think was the fun. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm gonna go Dancing with the Stars. Sorry, Star Search. I'm gonna kick you off. I'm gonna go Dancing with the Stars, Idol, Millionaire. And then we'll just put in the voice for now because I'm sure yeah. there's something else we're forgetting. Are you happy with that? Yeah. And I have to say back to the unscripted genre, I think we have to give some honorable honorable mention to Big Brother and the challenge. I love Big Brother. Because also both have been on the air for so long and there's so, people are so addicted to the casting and the storytelling. What are the shows that you nerd out on now? Like if we were at, if we were doing this podcast at a, at the Hollywood Tower Hotel or whatever, and someone walks into the bars, we're talking. Who are you fangirling out on from the reality TV space? Is there anybody or, or are you so jaded from the years of the business now that reality TV, TV people don't move the needle for you? What brings That's the fan- I, I have a, an amazing amount of um, admiration for people that participate in the unscripted genre. You have to give so much. Yeah. Um, but I think like, because this is our full-time job, I sort of, I do my escape time when I'm like allowed to just watch something and it's not a job. I really do like love documentary and I love scripted. There's so much good scripted. What do you like? And what are you watching right now? I mean, first of all, inventing Anna was delicious. Um, And I saw you guys are now developing. Yeah. Do you want to, I don't know how much of an announcement this was before, but you want to clue the listeners into what you're doing. Yeah, And I'll also tell you, I went, so Michael Driscoll, who is one of our VPs, um, was developing a show with Anna Delvey a year ago. And I'm just kind of like, oh, Michael, like, does anyone, is that like a, is that enough? And he's just yeah. like, trust me. And he was started to talk to her when she was out for like six weeks um, when she got out of uh, prison. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't really on my radar, yeah. but he continued to develop a relationship with her and, you know, potential series. And then I watched, I mean, then obviously we got deeper with her and I became fascinated. And then I watched like, um, inventing Anna. And I was like, all in. And yes, we are, we're working with her, um, on a documentary series that we're going to literally start following, start following her the second she gets out of prison or ice detention. Um, but I really give a lot of credit to Michael for seeing that long before I think, um, other people within our department did, including myself. Um, How did, so that's one of the questions I was going to ask you, you know, you, you start PB and J, but then you come back to Buna Murray, obviously you're now the president of Buna Murray which is such an amazing Hollywood fairy tale story of you having come in early on now coming back and having, I know, I'm pretty lucky having the big job. First question I want to ask on that is how do you actually organize the team? Because obviously you have this wing of the company with all the like legacy MTV shows with the challenge and real world and all the international extensions of that. And obviously you have all this incredible new stuff that you guys are doing. You have, you know, Lizzo's show at Amazon. So do you have separate wings of the company to manage these things or is it all through the same group? It's really all through the same group, but we have a pretty big team. So we have like 13 executives within the development team that are sort of in between like they're, they basically are sort of split, but everyone does development, but some do more current. So our sort of SVPs at the company have all been showrunners. Mm -hmm. And so they are 
you know, usually at the helm of the projects when they go to series, but more as an executive, you know, but we, you know how it is now you have to often build the entire show before you actually go into pre-production. So you really do need that expertise to do that liftoff. And then we have, you know, like, you know, incredibly creative people that are constantly sort of mining the universe to try to figure out what people are going to want to watch in two years. Because it really is two years from now by the time all is said and done, you get something on the air. I can't, I can't believe that you don't have just a straight current department and just a straight development department. So well, you really, it's one department that some people come from maybe more of an execution background, but it's all one department that kind of works together and there's no rules of who can develop and who can't. Is that right? Yeah, but, but just to like, so just to separate it out though. So every show that we have has an incredibly talented showrunner. Yeah. And then on the post side, because most of it's concurrent, Yeah, we always have somebody like we have, particularly on the challenge, it's really kind of a group. Um, Danny Wasco really runs um, sort of the creative post side on most of the challenge franchise, although it's gotten so big this year that we've actually brought in more talented people. Mm. But so every show has like a post EP. Okay. And they're really responsible for like making sure, you know, getting the show together, communicating with the network. So there are sort of two parts. And then all of our showrunners, our creative force behind our shows do consult through post, mm-hmm. but it's almost impossible to do both because they always overlap. Got it. Yeah, I think I wanted to ask you now, being the president of Buna Murray, you come back, obviously you're brought up through the ranks, but when it was time to get the big job, was there ever like a moment? See, I saw, I saw you just take like a deep breath right there when I, when I asked that. When it was time to get the big job, like was there ever any moment of like, oh, this is like, this is the real job. You know, one of the most treasured companies in our business. There's a lot of people under our watch or did it not phase you? Cause you had been there for so many years. It was no, just it a natural- totally phased me. It totally phased <laughs> me because, you know, it's, you know, it's nerve wracking to take on a company like this that has such an amazing history and so much success. And then I, it's like, there's also a part of me that, I, you know, I really had so much affection for Mary Ellis and I still have this incredible relationship with John and I don't want to let them down. So I'm back to being like a 21 year old producer in their office, trying to make sure that I don't let them down. So there's definitely an emotional piece to being a Murray. That's very different than if I was walking into a different company, like I love this company and I, and I, you know, so many of my friendships were born out of this, um, out of the shows I've done here. And I've had like, you know, John and Mary Alice were at my wedding, you know, like yeah. a lot of people here were there when my children were born, like it, it does become a family. And there are people here that have been here for 20 years. So like, wow, this is really, you know, for a lot of people, it's a career and, you know, it is, um, it is a huge undertaking and a really big responsibility to, to sit here. And I'm super grateful to have the job, but I'm also on my toes all the time, making sure I don't fuck it up. Thank you for being honest, by the way. So what did, so what did people be like, no, you know, I was ready for it. You know, like, no, no, you know, it's an easy transition. I've been here for years. No, and I- every person that's done this job has done it successfully. So yeah, <laughs> it is sort of like, you know, there is a huge responsibility. Um, did you have to... Or were you given the license when you stepped in? Did you recreate new protocols? Like, all right, we're not going to do the meetings at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays anymore. Like, it's more effective if we do it this way. Or we're not going to do three different meetings. We're going to combine this in the one meeting. Did you have the green light to kind of like restructure how the week runs? Or did COVID kind of throw a monkey wrench in that? 
I mean, I, I literally walked into this job and nobody had been in the office in a year. So like there was a little bit of like, oh my gosh, like we really have to sort of rethink the business model a little bit. So there was a lot of pressure in that, you know, what I really appreciated in sort of way this was structured is I, um, you know, Chris Abrego sort of took over Esna with Ben Samick and Wait, wait, explain what that means. The uh, okay. acronym, the acronym. Oh, so um, Endemol Shine North America is, so when Banerjee, um bought Endemol and the company sort of merged, they took all of the U.S. companies and sort of put them together with oversight um, through the Endemol group, which is now ESNA or Endemol Shine North America. So like I had Chris and Ben to sort of work with me to kind of like reallocate the business a little bit and kind of like figure out ways to be a little leaner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I actually really did have their guidance and that was super helpful because I didn't have to do it in a vacuum. Yeah. Um, so we were able to sort of do some restructuring and to share some services, which was really helpful. And I think, you know, as budgets are sort of evolving and changing and some are getting smaller, it's really important to sort of re-examine how the business is and how you can be, more efficient, um, so that you're able to be financially secure. I'm glad you touched on that. Cause it was, it was a great segue to where I wanted to go next. I saw this announcement from you guys might even be because you and I are like LinkedIn friends or something, but I saw yeah. the, I saw the announcement of the, the NFT initiative that you are now leading with a joint venture. Uh, so I'm gonna do a little role-playing with you. Okay. I'm going to be your uh, Italian uncle that you see at Thanksgiving. Julie, I read that you guys have some NFT metaverse thing you're doing. What is that? And how does that actually work? Yeah. So I, I honestly can't. I actually did have this conversation with my dad. And, um, <laughs> and I don't think I did a very good job of explaining it because like my dad still doesn't have like an iPhone. So you know, nor does my, nor does my father. It just felt like such a leap to get there. But I guess what I would say is that the, what, the way we look at NFTs is an opportunity for people to sort of invest like real audience members and the viewership to sort of have like an investment in a show. And Mm -hmm. how can we sort of embrace the fandom that exists with shows by creating content that generates sort of involvement from the people that watch your shows. And because, you know, most of our shows that we produce are not like owned by Buna Murray and Banerjee, it's really looking at like what new worlds can we sort of access to find another way to view programming. And I think there will be a time when almost everything we're viewing is in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. So how do we really sort of generate a new business model? Um, Some of it, like, like some of the details of this world. Like I literally, Rupert um, Dobson, who's our EVP of development, literally got me NFTs for dummies because <laughs> it's deep. Like there's so much to learn and it's yeah. like really a catch up. But the truth is, is what Peter Murray will be doing in this space is very much what we've always done, which is create content that can, that will be, you know, that viewers will consume and like, a lot of, we've been really fortunate because our shows generally do really well. We have a lot of hits. And if we continue that success in new worlds, as just new opportunities to have new buyers, that's something that's really exciting for us. Well, yeah, because the the article, the announcement said that the shows will be financed 
through through NFTs. So, yeah. so that I does mean, that mean viewers can like invest in the content itself? And then what do they receive back? Like we can all watch the show or only the people that invest can watch the show and they're part owners of it. I mean, I, I am that uncle right theory, now. In theory, you know, maybe those, the people that have sort of the NFTs VIP essentially will help pick us, pick the cast. Maybe right. they'll make some decisions in the programming and how it airs and when it airs or even challenges that you do. Like it's almost having a little authorship of some mm-hmm. of the shows that you're watching, mm-hmm. um, but it can expand and contract in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like the possibilities are really endless, but if you just look at it from the standpoint of like, if you took a show like, um, you know, Dancing with the Stars, people could sort of buy like teams and then almost like play them, you know, yeah. um, especially because that show is sort of live to tape. And, and that's one of the things is obviously it has to have, you have to be able to enforce whatever that thought process is that you're asking your NFT holders to participate in. Um, so I think there's, the, you know, the possibilities are really endless. And I think as we're starting to develop shows that make sense for NFTs, we're starting to recognize that it's opening up a whole new window pane of how we can execute programming. And are these meant to be on traditional platforms and networks that we're already making shows for? Or is this a wholly ran by Buna Murray, put it up on the open market out there type idea that you self-produce it and get it out there? Or do you need the traditional networks to partner in on these? I think for the beginning, because, you know, there's not really programming yet in sort of the metaverse um, that right now it's sort of like, how do we make this feel like very commercial and and very accessible for, for mainstream viewership. And that would like really include finding a partner, a platform that's willing to partner on something like this so that we can start really introducing the world to like different mechanisms for viewership. When you're done reading the NFT for dummies, can you just send it over? I'll totally send it to you because there's so much to learn. It's like, but by the way, you know, the, the universe and all of the, um, the influencers within this space and all of the tech, like the tech giants, this is all they've done for years. And just like us, what we do is like, we're very proficient in what we do, but it is learning something new. So it does take a bit. And that's also why we're partnering with people that are experts in this space because we're not like what we're experts in is creating content right? and they're experts in executing sort of this new universe. And that's what your, that's where your JV comes in. Yes. And that's what, yeah. So the JV's wonder fuel and our partners in it are virtual arts, which we met like a year ago, working on another project together. And then this just sort of evolved with um, Steve Azell, who's one of our SVPs and Rupert Dobson started playing in this space. Mm -hmm. And this really just kind of came about based on some conversations about where can, where else can we program for, you know, I mean, even looking at the market right now, there's so many platforms, which is really exciting because most of them are general audience. So you can kind of take a lot of ideas, but when you look at sort of the cable marketplace, it does get very specific. Yeah. So like, even though there's very specific shows for different networks, you can't just have a general idea. Like there's almost like, as there become to be, as, as there are more buyers, there's almost like less, less general audience platforms. Well, it's, well, what I, what I've been telling my friends is as there are more buyers, there's actually, for some reason, less human beings to actually pitch to because 
there's more, there's more shared departments. Yeah. So, so you have one group that is buying on behalf of multiple networks now, whereas before, back in the day, you and I, if we had something to go pitch, it was a female ensemble doc series, we'd be pitching Oxygen, Bravo, E, and those would all be three separate meetings. Yeah. Now, if you were going to pitch, you wouldn't pitch those three today, obviously, because Oxygen doesn't do that type of show, but it would be one group. So yeah. you actually have less of a variance of opinions to give the seller the opportunity just to find one champion it's among really all true. among all the pitch meetings. So you literally are getting less bites at the apple. Right. And then there's whole networks that are really just concentrated on just crime yeah. or just, you know, like cars. <laughs> yeah. And so just, you know, as you start doing development, you start realizing that there's not a lot of ideas that have multiple places to sell to. And, you know, that has always been sort of the our industry is like you have an idea and then you try to sell it to five or six places and hopefully you'll get an offer. And when you have an idea that only has like one or two potential buyers, the question is, is, is it worth the investment and, and doing the development, knowing that you only have two shots. That's, that's really the question you ask yourself now as a seller, right? Cause it's harder and harder to find ideas that you can pitch to four or five places. Yeah, it really is. The hyper specificity of, of the marketplace. Julie, this was awesome. Well, thank you. I had a lot of fun. I just had no idea that you were one of my, one of my people, my Italians. Uh, by the way, I have to say coming into this, I think of all the podcasts I've done, I don't think there's any one single person that I share more friends with that I haven't had like any quality time with. <laughs> we, I feel like we share like so many mutual yes, acquaintances. For and sure. I know I'm surprised, but you know, because you've also always been a seller and a producer, like a lot of times we all know about each other. Like I used to pitch yep. your wife all the time. Yeah. But I think that, you know, like a lot of times we don't end up in the same room, because That's right. we're, you know, unless we're at like real screen, which, you know, hasn't really been in person in, in a minute. It's the same thing. Cause when I, when I'm like one of those events and two network people see, she, I'm like, you guys don't know each other. And it's like, oh yeah. Why would the executive from discovery know the executive of Bravo? Like, yeah. Why, why would that make sense? You guys never meet or never have to any, have any work. Well, our business is really small. It really is. Like when you look yeah. at it, like you can really like, there's definitely like less than seven degrees of separation. Like it's really probably two. If you need to find out something about somebody, you can find them in one person. Yeah, no, it's absolutely, it is, it is a small, it's a small little world that we live in. I really appreciate you doing this. Was this okay? Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Okay.